Welcome to the Hogan Lovell's 2021 Outlook Developments in Shareholder Litigation podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Mullen. In this series, our lawyers will discuss the matters from Delaware courts and beyond in 2020 that were focused on key corporate governance issues, some familiar and some brand new. In this three-part podcast series, we'll analyze key trends to help you better understand their current and future implications. Joining us for this episode is Hogan Lovell's partner, Ryan Philp, from our New York office. Ryan is a trial lawyer who has represented clients in a broad spectrum of complex business, securities, and corporate litigation in state and federal courts nationwide. Also with us today is Senior Associate Allison Wirtz, also from our New York office. Allison combines a practical problem-solving approach with legal analysis and an understanding of our clients' businesses and goals with significant experience handling securities, financial products, and complex commercial litigation. We are recording this podcast from our homes in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules, and in this episode we're discussing litigation developments in fundamental shareholder rights, including Section 220 books and records demands and appraisal actions under Section 262. Let's bring in our guests to begin the discussion, Ryan and Allison. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I will direct my first question to Ryan, but Allison, I'm sure, will have some thoughts on it as well. Section 220 has received a lot of attention over the past few years. What do you see as the areas of continued focus and development? So as a starting point, I think we need to consider recent developments in context and in view of the evolution of the law in this area in recent years. For many years, uh, courts have been encouraging the use of what they call the tools at hand, which is really the use of Section 220 demands, particularly in derivative actions when assessing the pleading of demand futility. And that led to a increase in books and records cases. This year in particular, we saw by our count about 47, which is up considerably from the average. Um, And we've seen books and records become a prominent battleground. Initially, defense lawyers, there was extensive pushback on what may constitute a proper purpose or a credible basis to infer wrongdoing. Confidentiality, likewise, was a battleground. There was discussion regarding incorporation by reference of documents into pleadings for purposes of pleading stage motions. I would invite Allison to touch upon some of the more recent developments in cases But we've seen, among other things, the courts reemphasizing statutory standards, which are not necessarily as high as some may have argued, some expansion of the scope of what can be obtained under Section 220, and courts recently even exacting consequences where over-aggressive positions were taken. I think that's right, Ryan. I think there really has been, in particular, the, the scope questions, a lot of development there. You know, we've seen courts order the production of email, often where traditional books and records, board minutes, board materials were found to be insufficient for the shareholder's stated purpose. We've seen courts order the production of text messages, generally where it's alleged that the directors or the officers are using text messages to conduct the business of the company. And therefore, that information is not going to be found in your kind of core books and records. And this expanded list really changes the calculus for companies determining how to respond. They have to consider the increased cost of collecting and producing these materials. And in addition, people are often just more casual in text message or in chat. 
And I think that can really lead to kind of ambiguous documents that might be skewed in a negative way, you know, in a complaint by a plaintiff. And so the company is really going to want to have to you know, think about the scope of those materials and how their employees and their directors are using them. And Allison, what practical steps do you recommend a company take to best position themselves to respond to a books and records demand? So for practical steps, in terms of just kind of everyday advice for companies, I think the most important thing is to make sure that employees, as well as directors, you know, non-employee directors, understand this increased scope, that emails, texts, chats, and other informal forms of communication may be considered books and records of the company and may be subject to production. This is something that should definitely be part of the training that employees and directors receive on the company policies and the best practices. Making sure your document retention policies are up to date if they need to be changed to capture these sort of non-traditional forms of communication. They should be preserved uh, not only for full-blown litigation purposes, but to have those as part of the company's core books and records for Section 220 purposes as well. Ryan, what are your thoughts on that? I guess more broadly, my observation would be that companies need to recognize that books and records demands are increasingly a fact of corporate life and that sometimes the fight is not worth it. It's better to be prepared for the fight. The courts have recently been sending a message that stymieing legitimate books and records requests without reason likely is not the best approach. That's not to say that there can't be valid reasons to resist the books and records demand in its entirety, but companies need to carefully consider their options. Thus, preparation for eventual books and records requests is really the key, in my view. In M&A transactions, naturally, advisors should be involved and should be assisting the company boards of directors and their committees in crafting their records. And this would extend to board and committee minutes and other core documents. Um, And companies may want to consider essentially creating a core transaction file so that when the eventual books and records demand comes down the path, they're prepared to respond to it in good faith and to provide documents that have been curated for a specific purpose to meet eventual demands for disclosure and potentially to minimize disputes at the margins about whether additional documents should be produced. And Ryan, shareholders use documents from Section 220 demands for a variety of purposes, including bringing appraisal actions. Do you anticipate the current trend of decreased value on appraisal to continue? The short answer to your question is yes. Recent authority indicates that deal price is the most reliable indicator of value, subject to removal of deal-specific synergies in arm's-length transactions or in deals accompanied by an appropriate sale price. Likewise, where sale price is in question, courts also have held that unaffected market price may constitute fair value for companies where their stock trades in an efficient market and the disclosure is adequate. These developments, coupled with recent amendments to the DGCL, specifically Section 262, which granted corporations the opportunity to prepay appraisal claimants a certain amount to stop the accrual of statutory interest at the rate of 5%. Those two things together, the real net result is that appraisal appears to be a less attractive remedy in many instances. And where there are real deal infirmities or a dubiously low price, one would think that stockholders would be more likely to pursue other remedies like plenary claims rather than an appraisal remedy. 
I think to that point, Ryan, I, I think the trend may also end up being affected by the type of shareholder we're talking about. Large institutional shareholders may feel better poised to take on an appraisal action, right? They can be really expensive. They often go to trial. They involve extensive expert witnesses. And that might be something that a, a smaller individual shareholder just isn't able to handle. Appraisal actions also kind of gave that same public impression that the shareholder's trying to stop the deal or blow up the deal. So there are reputational concerns as well. Smaller shareholders may opt for those pre-litigation challenges you mentioned. They can be less expensive, fewer reputational issues. So we may see a bit of a bifurcation there. And the other thing is, I think ultimately, it's possible there may come a time um, where the courts really swing back around on this issue. They might feel that appraisal rights have been diluted or just too hard to exercise and, and just aren't serving the purpose they were designed for anymore. We've seen sort of a similar thing happen with the reemergence of Caremark claims, right, um, usually known as the hardest claim to plead and prove. But we've seen several make it past the motion to dismiss stage in the past few years and just kind of course corrected a little bit. So I think absolutely the same thing might happen with appraisal rights if the courts feel that things should be shifted a little bit back towards uh, the plaintiff's side. And Ryan, what can a company do to ensure that if they face an appraisal action, the transaction can withstand scrutiny? I think the law here highlights some of the same factors that are pertinent in other M&A and governance cases, in particular, the importance of a good and independent process and likewise good disclosure. Companies should ensure that a deal is evaluated by an independent board or a committee of the board. They should be aided by independent legal and financial advisors, and they should be empowered to negotiate and to say no when appropriate. This is particularly true in related party transactions or controlling stockholder transactions, where the MFW standard provides a valuable tool to obtain business judgment review. Likewise, particularly where a company's stock trades on an efficient market, disclosure is even more important. So in many ways, I would say what's important in appraisal cases is the same as what's important in other M&A and deal cases. Picking up on your mention of disclosure, recommending good disclosure obviously is always a safe bet for companies when it comes to uh, transactions and transaction documents, but really important here for appraisal purposes. The Delaware Supreme Court has indicated that minority shareholders are entitled to factual information that's material to their decision about whether to approve the merger and accept the merger consideration or seek appraisal instead. So we really want to make sure that companies, that our clients are taking steps to ensure that the material information sufficient to meet that standard is included in the deal documents. And this way we can just really avoid any challenges to disclosure altogether. The other suggestion I have is really a bit more pre-litigation, but Ryan, you know, you mentioned previously Section 262H, which allows the prepayment of consideration to avoid interest, definitely something that companies should always think about if they are facing an appraisal action. It can save them quite a bit of money. But as we saw in the Panera case, there is no refund on that prepayment. So if we do see this trend continuing, finding lower valuations, uh, the company could end up actually overpaying a little bit. So something to really consider based on the facts of the case the disclosures, the deal itself, but something to consider 262H, whether prepayment's appropriate. And our final question, how has COVID-19 affected this area of the law? Ryan, what do you think? Focusing on the books and records context, I think the biggest impact is accessibility of information and logistical complications and costs that go along with it. I think this is particularly true in my experience in cross-border cases where cross-border collection and gathering of information is necessary. 
even in ordinary times, that can be difficult and expensive, particularly where blocking statutes and things like state secrecy regimes are implicated. And that was even more true during COVID. And I think one byproduct of COVID is that companies are more cost conscious than they were before. So cost in and of itself is a, going to be a material issue and maybe grounds for companies to resist broad books and records demands. Once again, I think this highlights the benefits of having a plan in place to anticipate books and records demands, deal litigation, and to be prepared to produce documents to the extent an appropriate demand is received and to have those materials in hand in an effort to minimize cost. I agree. I think the impact on logistics has really been the most significant one, keeping in mind also that companies are eliminating offices in favor of working from home. So now we have different people in different countries and different jurisdictions with different rules related to GDPR or blocking statutes. And all of that needs to be unraveled before documents can go out the door in response to any request, uh, including a Section 220 request or including discovery in an appraisal action. So keeping tabs on where folks are located and what problems might arise based on those different jurisdictions is going to be really important. All right, Ryan Philp and Allison Wirtz, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks very much. For additional analysis on this topic, please download our latest publication, 2021 Securities, Shareholder, and M&A Litigation Outlook, available at HoganLevels.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series. I'm Steve Mullen.